Welcome to the podcast of Wiser, Women in Surgery at the Emory Residencies, where we share the careers and life stories of Emory surgeons across all specialties to recognize the diverse achievements happening right here at our own institution. I'm Sandra Hobson, a fifth-year resident in the Emory Orthopedic Surgery Residency Program, and I'm here with Caroline Coleman, a third-year Emory medical student. In this episode of the Wiser Podcast, we have the privilege of talking with Dr. Mara Schenker, an Emory orthopedic surgeon. Dr. Schenker completed her medical training at the Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago before attending residency at the University of Pennsylvania, where she was given the DeForest Willard Award for Outstanding Performance by a Senior Orthopedic Resident. She then completed her fellowship in orthopedic trauma at Harborview Medical Center at the University of Washington, before joining Emory in 2015. She is currently an Emory orthopedic trauma surgeon, as well as the director of orthopedic trauma research at Grady Memorial Hospital. So, first question. What first got you interested in medicine, and why did you become a doctor? I've always been peripherally interested in sciences and medicine in general, but my main reason for orthopedics and my main reason for going into medicine in general was I used to be a competitive martial artist, and I had three hip surgeries when I was in college that took me out of the competition, and so I hung out with some orthopedic surgeons, and that was the first thing that I ever found that I liked as much as taekwondo was the research behind orthopedic surgery, and so that was why I went to orthopedic surgery. How long have you done taekwondo then? Uh, so I stopped, gosh, in 2006, but I did it for 25 years, something like that. How do those kind of competitions work? Well, there are three. There were three main events. There's now a lot more, but one was forms, one was sparring, one was weapons, and my two big were sparring and weapons, and my weapon was nunchucks, and, my, <laughs> and sparring is like hand-to-hand combat. So it's taekwondo is a little bit more friendly than like mixed martial arts, which is big now, but taekwondo is a very sporty kick the head, things like that. I feel like when people ask me what sport I do now, I say surgery <laughs> because I feel like in some ways surgery, especially orthopedics, is like a sport because it requires some of the same hand-eye coordination, discipline, interest, knowledge of the topic. Yeah, no, I agree. And plus physically, it's like weightlifting. <laughs> yes. Like I, I was lying in bed this morning. I was like, oh, too bad. I can't, because my sport now is yoga, but I can't. I was like, oh, too bad. I won't be going to yoga for the next week because I'm either operating or I'm traveling this weekend. And then I was like, well, I'll be operating. Like that counts. <laughs> It definitely counts. So it seems like the transition into orthopedics was pretty natural. It was something that you were exposed to early. Did you have many mentors when you were getting exposed to that and any female mentors? So that's a great question. I was really lucky to have a few really good mentors. Uh, Dr. Mark Philippon, who um, is a hip arthroscopist, is out in Vail, Colorado, and he was the reason I got my lab job when I was in, because he was the one who operated on me, and then he hooked me up with the lab at the University of Pittsburgh, and so that was sort of what set my interest into orthopedics in the first place. Um, and then I had several really great mentors during residency that pushed me into doing wanting to do trauma. Between those two, those are my, my mentors. I've had a lot of really great female mentors as well, but I have two primary mentors that I still turn to for almost everything, um, who happen to be male just because orthopedics happens to be male most of the time. <laughs> and how did your interest in trauma evolve? So I thought I was going to do sports medicine, which would have been the natural thing from my taekwondo background, but I had to find something I liked the research side and I liked the clinical side. And when I was a resident, I really liked the research side of sports medicine, but I did really did not like the surgical side of sports medicine. I just didn't like arthroscopy. Then I really liked peds, but I really liked the surgical side of peds, but 
kids heal. And the research side of Pete's was less interesting to me because, like, you can put some a kid's femur in the same room and it'll heal just because they're kids. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, <laughs> but adult trauma, I really liked the research side of things, and I also really liked the surgical side of things. And so that was the best mesh for me. Plus, I had really great mentors at Penn who were trauma surgeons who were awesome and Without them, I probably wouldn't have done it, but or found it. What was some of the best advice you got along the way of your training? With my research background, my biggest fear in life was to not be technically competent as a surgeon. You don't just learn surgery by watching other people do surgery. You have to do surgery, and nobody is good at surgery. <laughs> like it's not something that like somebody woke up out of rolled out of bed and was technically an amazing surgeon. Some people are probably better with their hands. I was not one of them, and so I knew I needed practice and lots of repetitions and. And he was in the back of my mind and like it's easy to go under the shadow whenever you're a good researcher and you're good at organizing patient care for people to turn a blind eye if you're not technically a good surgeon because like you're good at other things that help them mm-hmm. and I had somebody who was like no like you are not a very good surgeon you need to practice your skills like you need to do more repetitions and he was the only person who ever told me that and so I um, made sure that that didn't happen to me. And I think that's an important point though I think Sometimes men and women, if they're med students and they're looking into going into surgery, they say, oh, am I a great surgeon already? And I think that's not necessarily the right question to be asking. I feel like the right question to be asking is, do I have the interest in becoming a great surgeon? You know, and the dedication, and I know you talk about grit a lot, and the grit to make it through to become a great surgeon. Yeah, and some of it too, I think, and this is probably the first formal forum I've mentioned this, but I'm talking to people about potentially writing a book about this, is that women in general tend to want to, I don't want to over-exaggerate things, but want to please and want to be, and this is well borne out in the business literature, and like this is something that like, and when somebody would hand me a knife when I was an early resident, I'd be like, they can do this better than me. Why should I do this? Like, I don't, if, if that person is technically better than I am, I don't want to put myself out there. You should be the one doing this. And you don't want to make a mistake. And you can't be a good surgeon without making mistakes and without doing something wrong. And it's it sucks for people to be like, oh, you're you're wrong. at You did this wrong or you did this and and you have to be okay with that. Like you just have to shut that part of your brain off and be like, the only way I'm going to get better at this and the only way I'm going to be good at this is if I make some mistakes and I have to be okay with that. And that was something that was a very cognitive part of my learning was to step back and be like, I have to be okay making a mistake. And that's was hard, but now I make lots of mistakes and (laughs) I have the opportunity to learn from them every day. (laughs) Well, I think uh, one thing that I think of when you say that is talking about time in the operating room, like either as a med student or during residency, where you get to do the surgery or parts of the surgery yourself. And so you work through like questions in your own mind or small mistakes here or there so that when you're in charge, when you're attending, you're watching out for those and now you're aware from them of yeah. them. It's it's not even the it's just being okay with making mm-hmm. like it with have with making a mistake and with mm-hmm. doing something imperfectly. Um, that was the hardest thing for me during my training, too. And there's a really good article in the Harvard Business Review. It's called The Paradox of Excellence. They talk about people who are very high-functioning human beings. Like, I was good at Taekwondo. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was there's plenty of things that I was good at in my life. And then when you step in as a mid-30-something adult, trying to learn how to use your hands to do something you've never been taught how to, like, before, and you're like... It's like teaching a 35-year-old how to, like, swim for the first time or how to ride a bike for the first time. Like, try to learn surgery for the first time. Like, you're going to fall off your bike. You're going to, you know... And I'm not saying this is the compromise of patient care because I, I train people every day and I would never do that. But you still have to be okay and think about it a lot. 
It takes a lot of confidence, though, and like you said, grit to be able to endure those mistakes and wake up the next day and go do you know similar operations and be like, this is a mistake that I've made, and be cognizant of where you're going, what you're going to do with those mistakes. And I think it's even harder for women. So there's a that's been born out in the business literature too. A confidence Code um, was a book that I read when I was a resident. That just some people come into a room and they're like by default, I am good at this. And therefore any mistake that is made is not, and that is not the way that I am. Like I walk in and you're like, okay, I'm bad at this until proven otherwise. Whereas other people who walk in with inherent confidence, I think it's easier for them to, to broach that. But my way of approaching that was not by changing that. It was by intellectualizing and being like, so I'm thinking about the fact that I'm not particularly confident about this case. So what do I need to do to improve my confidence? And it was just a very like algorithmic way of approaching my thought process. And what have some of your um, experiences been in research at Grady? I see you're the orthopedic trauma research director here. So how have you been involved in research here? Uh, so it's we started with five active studies. I think we now have 65 active studies. <laughs> um, we're A little more than five. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit more than five. Um, it's This is the perfect place to study. This is the reason I came here was because this was a giant blank slate of my partner. When I came here, he was like, you can build this from nothing into the best research program in the world. And I had, was lucky to have good mentors in research that taught me the right tricks um, of what how to do research right. And here I have the perfect substrate. So all the patients, like, there's no better place to study trauma than there is at Grady. It'd be one thing if I went to a different place where we didn't actually do a huge trauma volume. Um, this place was perfect because it, we do a huge trauma volume. So I have the, like, we just started a study four months ago that we're collecting um, social risk factor variables. And we have 227 patients already in the database. Like, and that's just for, uh, that's not even capturing everybody. So we have a perfect raw database to be able to study from and I can build whatever I want which is what's really fun here. What study are you most excited about right now? So I'm looking at the impact of psychosocial risk factors on uh, healthcare outcomes, quality and cost. So when you're trying to think about value-based payment models um, in the new healthcare climate, uh, Medicare is adjusting for certain medical comorbidities and things like that. But we all know the patients when they come into the to the trauma bay that we're like, well, that person's not going to do well because they're homeless. They don't, they don't have the resources that, and unfortunately they're a large portion of who we treat. And so if we can figure out a way to capture those variables with a pretty small survey and we can somehow both factor that into reimbursement, but also factor it into directing interdisciplinary care. So from the minute that person comes in the door, they get flagged as a high risk for being a high cost, high need patient. And then they get put through an appropriate algorithm. Maybe we set up a Grady hotel down the street where they're not living as an inpatient with an inpatient bill for a period of time, but to have a resource so that they have good outcomes, but also don't cost the healthcare system so much. And then as you know, although maybe some of the people listening don't know, ortho remains especially with the lowest percentage of women total, estimated around 6% of women practicing as orthopedic surgeons. I think it's 11% of women in residency. Oh, is that 6%? Is it really? So what what would both of y'all's message be to women that are considering a career in orthopedic surgery given just the data alone? I can't imagine doing anything more satisfying than what I do because there's such an incremental improvement from somebody who's flopping around on the bed with a broken femur to coming in two weeks later walking with a cane. Like it's about as gratifying in a short-term sense as any career could be. I don't know. My advice would be just come check it out. It's not, it's, yes, there are the, um, the reputation that we have of being like an old boys club and you know frat house uh, is true to some extent but that's okay like you don't I don't I don't partake in it that's that's not me I'm my own person and I can do whatever I want but my job itself is extremely satisfying I'd say the same thing and the other thing I'd add is 
just own the decision. If you want to be an orthopedic surgeon, if you find it interesting, if you think you're going to love it, then do it. Don't let a lot of this other stuff, you know, like, oh, there aren't a lot of women or I may have this problem or I may have that problem get in your way. I just think, like you said, if you love your work, you're going to love it and you're going to find a way to be successful as you still being who you are and successful in the job. And I think being unique actually makes you uniquely valuable in some ways. Yeah. And yeah, I totally agree with that. There's a couple, another couple good articles in the Harvard Business Review that I read that are... <laughs> We're both fans. Of yeah. That, and one, is, one is how do you measure your life? <laughs> and uh, I forget what the other one is, but they're both on the, the first two articles in the book on managing yourself. And they talk a lot about figuring out what you value. And I talked to the MS2s like a couple months ago about career options. And it's matching up what you value with what the job is. Like if you value long-term care, if you value having like long-term conversations with people and working with chronic problems, then this is not the job for you. But if you like just figuring out what you value and what you want out of your career and you just match that with what you want. And if it happens to be orthopedics, then it's orthopedics and just don't worry about what else is going on around you. What's one of the most impactful cases you've ever had? I've taken care of a lot of patients. <laughs> they're they're impactful in their own way. I mean, there's there's one particular guy that sticks out in the back of my mind that was about six foot eight, and he was massively schizophrenic, homeless, and he had a tibia fracture, and I nailed his tibia, and never came back for follow-up, which sometimes is what they do, and he he was brought by the police officers, like, six or eight weeks later, because he was found on a park bench with a, quote-unquote, crooked leg. Like, he had no complaints. The police just said his leg was crooked, so they brought him into the emergency department. He had a big deformity of his distal tibia. He'd been walking on it, wasn't supposed to be walking on it, so we admitted him. I took his nail out. We had to correct his deformity, put him in a big round circular external fixator and he lived at Grady for six weeks um, outside of Grady on the street corner where I would see him every single day just sitting on the street corner outside of Grady and he healed and he healed straight and he I think we've seen him once in the emergency department because he came for some unrelated reason and one of my residents saw him and got an x-ray but he doesn't have the ability to navigate the healthcare system and I think that he is what sticks out in the back of my mind because you know we take care of some high level people who are high profile who are all over the internet who you know we don't find out who they are for several days but then we also take care of those people and they're the ones who we really need to try to help and we need to figure out how to help them navigate because we don't understand what they struggle with and that's what's pushed that one guy alone I think is what's the the contrast between him and some of the higher profile people that I've taken care of is exactly why my research direction is headed where it is because I'm like we have the perfect we have the full spectrum of health disparities here and socioeconomic status and there's no better place to study and so I think every time I I mention that guy at least once a week because he's had such an influence Mm -hmm. on my on my life but I'm like you know what we got him to heal and we got him to (laughs) heal straight and plenty of people would not have given him the chance because he doesn't have insurance he doesn't like people would blame his schizophrenia people would blame his smoking people would blame his homelessness and he did I mean he had one small problem but we got him to heal without any other problems and he's back so parting question Mm -hmm. what is your parting piece of advice to young medical trainees today Really be honest with yourself about what you want out of your career. I think that there's a huge problem with physician burnout. And it's, I think, a lot related to the fact that there's a mismatch between what people think they want and what they actually want out of their lives and being honest with yourself as to what you want to do. Um, Because I think the reported rate's like 50%. There was a systematic review this month in JAMA that addressed the issue of physician burnout. And this place is a, you know, Grady historically has been a huge setup for uh, physician dissatisfaction and 
and burnout and I can honestly say I'm the exact opposite of burned out like I am ex- I'm excited by what I do um, and it's because I knew exactly what I was getting myself into when I came here like I was everybody was very honest with me like you have you know the ABC might not go so well but here you've got a great turnover time you have a huge opportunity for growth like you have all these various things and that was what I valued the most out of my career and because that lined up it makes me worry a little bit less about some of the inter- other inefficiencies of the system and so I can get through that so I think if you're honest with yourself and you know what you want um that's what's going to make you happy all right thank you so much Dr. yeah thank Shane. you it was a pleasure talking with you thank you thanks for tuning in to today's wiser podcast hope you join us next time for another great interview